Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Brett Rushforth, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Oregon. Rushforth joined the UO faculty in fall 2016, coming from the College of William and Mary. Rushforth is a scholar of early American and Atlantic history. His research focuses on slavery, race, and law in the French Atlantic world. His most recent book is Bonds of Alliance, Indigenous and Atlantic Slaveries in New France. Thanks, Brett, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And welcome to the University of Oregon. Appreciate it. What sparked your interest in early American history and slavery in early America? Where did that interest come from? Well, strangely, it came by way of the Pacific Northwest. Um, when I initially was doing my research for my master's degree, I was interested in Columbia River Native people. Mm -hmm. And so I started researching uh, people known as the Cowlitz Indians, uh, you know, sort of lower Columbia River tribe. And I was looking at their relationship with the Cowlitz and Columbia River basins, so it was an environmental history. And as I was researching that, it had nothing to do, of course, with early American history or slavery, um, I kept coming across references to French traders in the region who had been, uh, you know, brought by the Hudson's Bay Company, et cetera, and uh, they kept referencing enslaved native people. And I just got curious about it. And the initial curiosity was just, well, I want to read a book about that. And I kept looking for a book about that and it just <laughs> didn't exist. And so it led me back to sort of the origins of where these people came from, to Montreal, uh, and then into the records. Uh, and I, I searched back for the origins of it and uh, it took me back to the 17th century and eventually even deeper into the history of uh, French colonization. So. Hmm. So the book, Bonds of Alliance, Indigenous and Atlantic Slaveries in, in New France, on, about the title, first of all, um, you just mentioned in, indigenous slaveries, slaveries in the plural? So what are these slaveries, first of all? How are there more than one of them? Where, when we, in the United States, we tend to think of African slavery right. in the south of the United States. Tell us about the plural, what, what is this? Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the plural does two things. Uh, one is that it gets at what I see as the heart of this slave system, which is that it, it draws from two uh, quite different uh, ways of seeing slavery and ways of practicing slavery. One is indigenous to North America, and that is where Native American peoples, um, uh, in this case in the sort of Mississippi Valley and Western Great Lakes, uh, would capture and enslave their enemies and they would forcibly incorporate them into their communities. They would do degrading work, they would be owned in some way, they would be uh, under threat of death, and so in, in many ways it's slavery like we'd be familiar with, but in other key ways it was nothing like the slavery we're familiar with. They would also use uh, slaves as diplomatic gifts. They would also have the intent, unlike Southern US slavery, of fully incorporating these people into their societies. Hmm. So the goal was not to bring slaves in and perpetually exclude them, it was to bring them in and forcibly incorporate them. Um, and that encountered in the colonial world, the slavery in the French Atlantic, which is much more like the familiar slavery you're talking about, plantation-based, race-based um, slavery that really is designed to perpetuate uh, unfree labor and that really is designed to uh, sort of close off those entryways into integration in the society. And so when the French colonized North America, they found themselves engaged in these diplomatic exchanges of Native American people um, who had been captives, and they realized that they could try at least to turn that 
into a slave system similar to what they're familiar with, and they realized that was not quite so easy. So it's plural in that sense, those two slaveries. Mm -hmm. But even within the French colonies, there were many different ways of practicing slavery. And so the book also, in addition to sort of putting those two kinds of slavery in conversation with each other, it also looks regionally um, at French practices of slavery. So French slavery in Detroit, for example, in the 18th century was quite different from French slavery in Quebec City mm -hmm. and quite different from slavery in uh, Martinique or Saint-Domingue or something like that. And so uh, slavery is, uh, is meant to decenter that sort of one monolithic understanding of slavery. Okay, so um, New France, just give us a little, so where was New France? How, how much of, uh, of uh, North America was New France and the Caribbean was New France? Sure, so New France um, as a colony was really the sort of mainland North American colonies and it, it encompassed uh, the St. Lawrence Valley, all of what is today Quebec, um, uh, Quebec City, Montreal, and the uh, settlements in between. Uh, but it also encompassed the Western Great Lakes, so places like Detroit, mm -hmm. which was settled by the French in 1701, um, and then other fur trading settlements in Michigan and Illinois, Indiana, and down the Mississippi River to uh, Louisiana. So that broad uh, geographic definition was New France. There were some particular uh, divisions within that that cut Louisiana off from the rest of that mm -hmm. uh, uh, administration, and it was culturally different, but that's, that's really the region we're talking about. So the, the French colonists, um, you know, they, they come and they, 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 they occupy this area, and I, and I know from doing a little research on your work that it isn't the case that, you know, they, it, it, it's this massive French occupation, right? right? right. It's rather spotty, they have mm -hmm. these. Um, so who are the um, indigenous peoples that are living in this part of the United States? Who are the tribes that are living there at this point? Uh, so the people that the French encounter in the West, which are the main people that become their slave trading partners, uh, would be Algonquin speaking peoples, so Illinois, Miami, uh, uh, Anishinaabeg, uh, which is a large grouping of uh, Odawa um, and other peoples, uh, Ojibwe, uh, and then also Fox, Sauk, Kickapoo uh, natives from uh, present-day Wisconsin. And uh, they encountered the French largely as fur traders, uh, also as missionaries, but uh, the people that are engaged in the trade are largely fur traders. So the French colonists are, are uh, trading with uh, these indigenous peoples and they come to understand that there's this particular configuration of slavery that's going on among indigenous tribes. So how did they respond to that? What, in what sense did that become something they were interested in or interacted with, and how did it affect the way they were practicing slavery? Yeah, I would say in two ways. One is that they engaged in these diplomatic ceremonies um, because native peoples of this region um, didn't separate out the idea of friendship and alliance from the idea of trade. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sort of well-worn phrase that's trade and alliance we take to be one thing. You know, the idea that you trade with your friends, you go to war with your enemies, mm -hmm. and you don't separate those two out. Mm -hmm. And so as the French sought to form these alliances in the West, both for commercial reasons and for military reasons to protect them against the British, um, one of the diplomatic gifts that was offered to them were captive humans. And this is at a time when, in the Caribbean, uh, sugar production and other very valuable commodities are being driven by enslaved labor. Uh, so in a colony where 
people couldn't afford to invest largely in African slave labor. It doesn't have crops that yield the kind of profits. It doesn't have a growing season that would be, you know, sort of support any tropical crops. And so they saw this as a potential supply of slaves for the colony, mostly to do domestic work, to do some farming and other things, you know, un undesirable tasks that people who saw themselves as above this didn't want to do. And in these Caribbean uh, plantations, that's largely African slavery. That's it is. It, it's, it's not exclusively African slavery. So in the earlier 17th century, there are plenty of Native Americans that are enslaved in the French Caribbean, mm -hmm. um, first from the islands themselves, and then when those uh, trades end up in warfare or depleting native populations from mainland South America largely. Mm -hmm. So places like Venezuela mm -hmm. and Orinoco Valley, the Amazon Valley, there are trades up the French Caribbean islands. But by the end of the 17th century, it's largely people of African descent. And the French have a, a very different understanding of uh, uh, the sort of character of uh, uh, people of African descent versus people of Native American descent, isn't that correct? Well, at this time, in the early in the early period of this trade, I think it was less different maybe uh -huh. than we might think. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly becomes that way mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. And those, the narratives that they spin essentially to justify uh, the lay of the land uh, end up creating different narratives for African people and Native American people. Uh, largely the narrative they have for, for North America is that these people are sort of uh, naturally free, they're mm -hmm. indomitable, mm -hmm. uh, because the French in very small numbers are trying to be allies to these people and they can't dictate terms to them. They can't dictate prices for the slave, I mean, sorry, for the fur trade. Mm -hmm. um, and they realize that these people are sovereign, they realize they have uh, no ability to subjugate them. Whereas the, the predominant experience with people of African descent by French colonists is with enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And so they develop narratives to, to justify that as well. You know, they're naturally slaves, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so they create these opposing narratives uh, that really, of course, bears no relationship to um, either cultures, right? I mean, Africans are no more natural slaves than Native Americans are uh, sort of naturally unable to be civilized. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've mentioned that, so the French encounter these native peoples and that begins to um, impact the way that they're doing the slave trade. So they start trading uh, these captive native people. Um, how, how does this, this uh, developing trade relationship in, in, in terms of human trade impact other aspects of French the French colonies? With some, what other kinds of impacts does this have? I mean, we, I, I think we're inclined to think, you know, when there's slavery involved, there's victimizers and victims, but, it's, but right. it sounds like it's a more complicated picture in your account. Right, and I think that's actually true in all slaveries. I mean, if we look at the African slave trade, of course, you have uh, people on the west coast of Africa selling their war captives mm -hmm. to Europeans. And in that sense, it's not all that different. Mm -hmm. um, but in the French colonies of North America, one way that it really transforms uh, the uh, not necessarily the economy, but certainly the culture and the feel of the place mm -hmm. is that if you go to somewhere like Montreal, um, the main merchant district, and you look at the households in that merchant district, mm -hmm. I was able to calculate that somewhere between 47 and 50 percent of those households had at least one native slave mm -hmm. uh, doing the work, um, you know, of uh, uh, what probably otherwise would have been done by a French domestic servant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the population of the town is, is certainly affected, but it also affects their alliances. And mm -hmm. so if you are a French diplomat, you're trying to create an alliance with, let's say, the Fox Indians of Wisconsin, 
uh, you've been in a war, you've taken some captives, you've sold those captives to uh, you know, families, households in, in the colony, mm -hmm. uh, then you create a peace treaty. The fox very naturally say, can we please have our children back? Mm -hmm. And then we'll be happy to abide by the terms of this treaty. Mm -hmm. And uh, the French find it very difficult to re-extract those enslaved fox children and give them back. And so the property function of French slavery that they're used to, sort of perpetuating that person's status as a slave runs up against the diplomatic functions of human trafficking and sort of the more fluid slave trade that that system would demand. And were there particular native tribes that would exploit that tension? Absolutely, and in fact, the Fox Wars is a great example of that, where uh, the French ideal when they moved west was to make friends with everybody. Not because they're particularly nice, but because <laughs> the more trade partners they have, uh, the more access they have to the fur trade, and the more military allies they have. So their dream is to say, well, we're gonna take all of these people, whether or not they like each other, and build them into one big alliance with the French. And they kept running into their friends saying, actually, we'd rather you not incorporate those people. So the Dakota- those people are our Those enemies. people are our enemies. Mm -hmm. So like the Dakota Sioux, for example. We've been at war with them. If you go and show them friendship and provide them with arms and other things, that's actually a violation of our friendship with you. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing happens with the Fox uh, Indians. And so uh, as the French try to form these friendships, their native allies actually are able to sort of drive wedges between the Fox and the French by capturing Fox slaves and selling them to French families. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing happens with the Sioux. And mm -hmm. so, so the Dakota Sioux, uh, there's a delegation, for example, in the 1730s that comes to Montreal. It's a really long voyage. They, de they dedicate a lot of time and resources. And they show up in Montreal, they think things are going to be going well, and then all of a sudden they see enslaved Sioux children mm -hmm. serving the households, and they say, wait a second, this is not what we have in mind, mm -hmm. so please give us back our children. And they're like, oh, we're not sure we can really do that because there's you know, property rights and we really can't just take them away. Mm -hmm. And that breaks down um, this real potential for expanding French trade into uh, Minnesota and further west. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of strategic wall that's created by French allies to prevent f the French from going further west that, into their- That's fascinating. So that you've just described how the, the uh, influence of, of native uh, indigenous slavery impacts the French process of colonization. How does the, f the slave trade between indigenous peoples and the French impact indigenous peoples? That's a great question too. Uh, so one way um, is that having a demand, an outlet for captives changes the calculus of warfare. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, a, in a normal year without the French involved in the equation, uh, there would have to be a difficult choice made um, between say uh, going on an, a military raid against an enemy and going hunting. Mm -hmm. um, or harvest might be interrupted by captive taking. That was a choice, a zero-sum game. And what that did is it meant captive taking was a last resort. It, it provided all these incentives to sort of diminish that, that uh, impulse within their society. Uh, but if you could raid for captives and trade for food <laughs> or trade for other goods, um, uh, meat or, or other things, uh, cloth, et cetera, then you actually could collapse those two activities into one, mm -hmm. where subsistence and warfare could actually serve each other's ends. So it creates these really perverse incentives where uh, taking away some of the breaks uh, that would be put onto that system. Um, another way that it tra that changes is that 
uh, women and children used to be, uh, in the earlier 18th century, in the later 17th century, they were a really important demographic boost to native towns that had lost people in warfare. They would take captives, and if they were trading away young men as diplomatic gifts, or sometimes ritually killing them as an act of revenge, um, just like Europeans would, of course, in warfare, uh, the women and children would become part of their, their town, and it would grow. Mm -hmm. uh, but with the French, uh, because they were largely uh, demanding domestic laborers, uh, because of gender expectations among the French, that mm -hmm. typically meant that the demand for women uh, was higher than the demand for men. And so by about the 1740s, you see this real increase in the trade of uh, captive native women to French colonies. And that, I think, no coincidence at all, uh, happens to be the decade when the populations of these towns plummet. Mm -hmm. So they'd survived disease epidemics. They'd survived the sort of warfare that comes at the edges of colonialism. Mm -hmm. What they could survive was the sort of undermining of this sort of demographic uh, mm -hmm. recovery mechanism. And so that's just a couple of ways. There are others, but. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you you mentioned that you know this is going on in this part of the 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 uh, the uh, nor in North America, but the British are there too. Mm -hmm. So. How did the British manage their relationship with these Native American tribes and the French? You, 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 you suggested that there's a significant antagonism between the British and the French. Right. How do the British interact with these Native tribes that have relationships with the French? So um, uh, it's complicated, and it would really depend regionally on where we're talking about. But the, the broad story is the British tried to get their Indian allies, the French tried to get their Indian allies, and they lined up against one another. Mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. were typically trying to sort of uh, draw on uh, already existing native antagonisms, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if we were to look at the largest division, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, the five and then six nations Iroquois, um, uh, we're, we're quite antagonistic toward many of the French allies, the Algonquin-speaking peoples, um, and had a history in the 17th century, at least, of raiding French settlements in Canada. And so they became sort of the common enemy of the French, hmm. and uh, the British tried to court them very heavily. Hmm. And uh, in the early 18th century, right at the very beginning of the 18th century, the Iroquois decide to uh, agree on neutrality in these, these uh, you know, divisions between. It doesn't play out that way really at all. In fact, there are Christian Iroquois that fight for the French and raid you know, English settlements. And there mm. are, um, but in terms of the slave trade specifically, uh, the English slave trade in native captives tended to go through South Carolina. And so one thing that ha came out in a, in a book long before I wrote mine was that um, up to the early 18th century, there were far more slaves exported from Charleston than there were imported. Hmm. Um, and that as many as 50,000 enslaved Native Americans had been exported from Charleston to the Caribbean hmm. uh, by about 1710 or 1715. And so they had actually stirred up a lot of the warfare and instability that then the French sort of tap into when they move into the region. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. So um, you mentioned that um, I mean, part of this dynamic between the French and the British is a sense of um, each of these European groups feel a kind of ethical superiority to the other, yeah. right? Yeah. So how do the French, when they look at British practices of slavery, 
how do they understand, how do they compare themselves to the British in relation to the question of, of the slave trade? I mean, I think in the relation to the slave trade, uh, there's very little difference. Uh, historians have tried to look back and say, well, the French were more humane because, uh, you know, they made them Catholic and they had, you know, certain restrictions on, you know, the kinds of punishments you could give. Uh, but in practice, I think everybody realized that it was the slaveholders who were making the slave codes, it was the slaveholders who were running the courts. Mm -hmm. And in, in a British or a French colonial setting, slavery was pretty brutal. Um, where the French felt and argued for a real superiority was in their relationship with native people. Mm -hmm. uh, they were much more likely to learn native languages, to marry native women, to engage mm -hmm. in deep diplomacy, the kind of diplomacy where you'd move into the, the town, where you'd get to know people, you'd have in-laws, you know, native in-laws mm -hmm. that would be, you know, trading with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, because their numbers were so small relative to the British, they were pretty successful at persuading native people that they were better off trading with the French and allying with the French rather than the British because they would just say, look, uh, if you're friends with the British, you have to realize there are a couple million of them ready to come into your, your valley. Um, there are only you know, 60,000 of us and, hmm. and uh, we have a history of, uh, of being much more engaged in your, your methods of uh, trade and diplomacy. So take your pick. <laughs> and, and quite often, Native people did favor the French, uh, largely for demographic and, and uh, you know, demographic reasons and reasons of territory and land. Huh. So this project, the work you've done, is completely fascinating and a, a revelation, I think, to most Americans who really don't know anything about that there was an indigenous slave trade and they don't really know anything about New France. Tell us about your research methods. How do you do this work? Yeah. Well, initially, um, uh, I started by trying to identify who the captives were and try to work back from that. And, and, so and why, why begin there? Why is that? I, I think it's just because um, I figured if I could figure out where they came from, I could then figure out what the routes of captivity and trade were, and that would help me see the diplomacy. Um, the, the research really kind of started with a basic question, which was, you know, how is it that the French, who just like we talked about, were you know, very good at forming alliances um, and uh, developing positive relations with Native people, how is it that they also were so successful at enslaving? And in fact, that New France uh, practiced Native slavery all the way up through the, the end of the colony, at the end mm -hmm. of the Seven Years' War in 1763. Mm -hmm. And uh, that conundrum, you know, was really uh, interesting to me and mm -hmm. so I would look at the diplomatic arrangements and try to see if I could get it to line up somehow or find out what the relationship was between that and uh, what was happening in the, the households with the enslaved people and so that required me to look at Catholic baptismal records mm -hmm. it required me to look at court records it required me to look at any kinds of mentions I could get that would tell me who these enslaved people were turns out the Catholic parish registers were the best mm -hmm. uh, they the priests would often uh, note the baptism and then they would say that this person was of the Fox Nation or of the Dakota Nation or mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. And then I was able to find out who their master was, who their trade partners were uh, through notarial records and figure out what possible routes we might be looking at. Um, and the, another thing that I ended up doing, uh, and this was sort of, um, the, the final stage when I was really feeling like I didn't have a great handle on indigenous slavery. I had what the French d 
described it as. Mm -hmm. um, I even had some French captives talking about what their experience was. But what I didn't have was a lot of Native people themselves saying mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what they thought of it. And so I was able to find some uh, 17th century Jesuit manuscripts that were designed as um, language training books. Not, it, to call it a dictionary is a little too simplistic. I mean, they kind of were really advanced dictionaries, phrase books, mm -hmm. where um, Jesuits that had lived among, say, the Miami or the Illinois, or who had lived among the Ottawa or the, uh, the Ojibwe, uh, would take um, years and uh, write down all these different phrases. And they wouldn't just say, uh, this is their word for shoe, or this is their word for dog. They would say, um, this is how their verb declines. Don't say it this way because you'll insult their mother, <laughs> um, etc. And uh, the the book I used, or the, the manuscript I used most, is almost 600 pages of this. <laughs> um, and so it includes all of the Algonquin words for captive, for slave, for dog, for you know, enemy, all these kinds of things. And I could even find things like insults hmm. that relied on the metaphor of slavery. So hmm. if you really wanted to insult someone badly, you would call them some things I probably can't say on air, but <laughs> uh, that always had the metaphor of slavery uh, embedded in them. And so hmm. it was the sort of uh, combination of the descriptions of French people who had seen the captivity, and then most importantly, how Algonquin people themselves uh, would describe these things. And so I was able to find out how they understood the relationship between the captor and captive, for example. Did they see it as a property relationship? What kind of possessives did they use? Um, what kind of metaphors did they use uh, comparing them to animals? And so uh, that took me a very long time. I spent two years just doing that one thing. Hmm. Um, but as a result, I think I got a really much, uh, uh, just a much richer view of indigenous captivity than mm. I had before. So that's oh, fascinating, fascinating story. So we, we don't have that much time, just a few more minutes. But the first question is, what drew you to the University of Oregon? You had this career at yeah. and Mary, <laughs> all the way on the other side of the country. Why did you come here? Well, two things. I mean, one is I'm a Westerner. Um, I grew up in the West. I was born in Montana, grew up in Utah, went to graduate school in California. Um, I've always been. Uh, uh, drawn to the geography of the West, the mountains, the, you know, the coast. Um, I also, all three of my degrees were from large Western state schools. Mm -hmm. And my dad taught a large Western state school, University of Utah. And it just is, it felt like home. Uh, so that's part of it. There are personal and family reasons that mm -hmm. I have ties to Oregon. I'd lived in Portland before and, uh, you know, on a personal level, those were sort of obviously reasons that got me looking. Uh, but when I came here for the interview, it was really just a sense that um, this felt familiar. This felt uh, comfortable to me. You know, felt like what I imagined a university felt like. Okay. <laughs> so I have one minute left. I'm going to ask you a very quick question. Um, you've helped. To, you are helping to organize the OHC, the Oregon Humanities Center, organize our Fallon Memorial Lecture in Law and American Culture with Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf on April 21st. Tell us why that work, the book, the, what they're coming to talk about. Why is that important? What's that about and why is it important? It's really critical because what you have is two of the, the nation's top scholars of, of Jefferson and his legacy uh, who have co-authored a book. Annette Gordon-Reed uh, comes at it from the angle of the Sally Hemings story, you know, this enslaved woman who uh, uh, 
had six children by Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. um, and she'd written two books, won the Pulitzer Prize for one. And then Peter Onuf, who comes at it from the, the, the history of political culture and the institutional history and is, uh, you know, really well known for Jefferson's political thought. And so to have the two of them come together and try to understand, Jeff understand Jefferson's understanding of Jefferson, which is kind of what they're trying to do, uh, I think is a really important conversation. Uh, All right, well, we look forward to that really important conversation. Thank you for this really important conversation. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, appreciate it. I've been speaking with Brett Rushforth, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Oregon. His book, Bonds of Alliance, Indigenous and Atlantic Slaveries in New France, explores slavery as practiced by Native Americans and French colonists. Thanks so much for watching. Mm -hmm.